If you enjoy This Mom Loves, you may also like This Girl Loves Sleep. In every episode, host Alana McGinn, sleep expert and founder of Goodnight Sleep Sight, helps your entire family bring back bedtime. Alana McGinn discusses your burning sleep questions for your baby, child, and even for yourself. This Girl Loves Sleep. Look for it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn. I'm a mom, a kindergarten teacher, blogger, freelance writer, TV guest, virtual book club host, and also a podcaster. And you are listening to episode 44 of the show. I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm just going to kick things off with an exciting announcement and then get right into my very special guest, Jessica Leahy, who is a teacher. She's the author of The Gift of Failure, which was the inaugural choice, the January 2020 choice of the This Mom Loves Virtual Book Club and very well received. And when I recorded the interview with her, it was just jam-packed. She had so much great stuff to share. So I want to get right at that as soon as possible. But before we get to Jessica, I do want to share some exciting news. So in honor of my 10th blogiversary, back um, in January 2010, I actually hit publish on my very first blog post here at This Mom Loves. I thought it was the perfect time to share some exciting news. So it's my very first product collaboration, a jewelry collaboration with the fantastic brand Hidden Gems by Raquel. Raquel Paulo is a fellow Canadian mom and a small businesswoman, and she and I have, have had so much fun designing a very tightly edited collection of bracelets that we think This Mom Loves followers, listeners, readers are going to love. So it's called This Mom Loves by Hidden Gems by Raquel, and it's going to launch on March 1st. So you should keep that in mind if you have a spring birthday or anniversary. Of course, Mother's Day, you might want to pick one up for uh, your mom or grandma or ask for one yourself. You might also just want to snatch one up um, just for no reason as soon as they, they go on sale March 1st because they are, they're super cute. Um, there are also a couple of mummy and me options as well. So you can get the regular size bracelet with a smaller bracelet, or if you do have an older child you want to twin with, you can actually get it, get it made larger. You can request that and, um, discounted price to buy this set as opposed to separate bracelets. So very, very excited. Um, while I love to accessorize, anyone who knows me also knows that, I'm always looking to, you know, declutter and, and be a little more minimal. So I knew if I was going to collaborate on some sort of product, it was going to have to have meaning. So Raquel and I definitely made sure that, that these pieces fit the bill and we're keeping the prices as reasonable as we can. So throughout February, we will be sharing some clues about um, the very special names of these three styles, um, as well as the materials that are used. They have some meaning um, as well. And you might see them popping up on some familiar wrists in your social media feeds too. We have some people uh, really kindly helping us spread the word. So Raquel and I are both really excited about this partnership. And eventually I'll tell the story of how we sort of came together and, and worked everything out. Um, but for now, you can just wait for the line, This Mom Loves by Hidden Gems by Raquel to launch on March 1st. And right before we get to my special guest, Jessica Leahy, if you are looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at This Mom Loves. I'm on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves. My website is thismomloves.ca. And if you are interested in the This Mom Loves Virtual Book Club, you can find that on Facebook. It is a Facebook group. So go on over and search This Mom Loves Virtual Book Club. You can click to request to join, and I will be thrilled to approve that request and let you in. Oh, and there's one more thing I do want to mention this week, which is that This Mom Loves t-shirts are now available. Very exciting. So they are being made by Little Mama & Co. Designs, which is a small business located in Peterborough. They're Fruit of the Loom cotton. Um, we tried a few different ideas because it's always nice to have that really soft kind of t-shirt fabric, but the softer you get, the more see-through they were and they're white. So we had to kind of uh, compromise. So it's a nice Fruit of the Loom cotton. It's not too see-through. The cost is $25. There's no markup for me because I'm not looking to profit financially. I'm just so thrilled that the people want to show off my logo, which is which is great. Local pickup is free. There is an option for me to ship it. I think it'll be um, just about $10 for shipping. So I will have a link with a little order form in the show notes for this post. So it's thismomloves.ca slash podcasts. And this is episode 44. Um, we are going to close off to orders for this batch on February 7th. So make sure, um, 
you get your order in right away if you want in on this batch. And then of course you might be listening to this episode way far down in the line in the future. So you can still go check out um, the link in the show notes because we may be uh, doing another batch at that time. So $25, a beautiful white This Mom Loves logo t-shirt. If you are interested, check out the show notes for this post. Thank you. I'm so excited to welcome my special guest this week, Jessica Leahy. Jessica is a mom, a teacher, and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So I know I love your book so much so that um, actually I started a virtual book club and everybody is reading it this month, but you actually had a famous, uh, a famous reader out there who has also endorsed your book, which I thought would be a fun little thing to talk about just to start off. So Kristen Bell. So how did you find out about that and what impact did that have? <laughs> How I found out about that was because of my sister. I'm I try really hard to be good when I'm writing, which is in the mornings, to turn everything off so that I have no distractions. I'm not tempted to go, you know, check check Twitter one more time. So, um I didn't there was no like my phone wasn't buzzing or anything. And then my landline rang, which is crazy because my landline never rings, and my sister told me to turn on my phone. And the minute I turned on my phone, it was just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and um that's how I found out. My sister was like, go, go look at Kristen Bell's Instagram timeline. You got to go look. So it was, it was a bit of a wild morning. It was really fun, especially since when something like that happens, you have no um, advance warning and your publisher needs to know immediately because it's one thing when someone with a couple thousand followers recommends your book. It's fantastic. I mean, that's how my book has continued to sell over a couple of years. Um, but when Kristen Bell or Oprah or Reese Witherspoon do the same, um, your publisher needs to know about that because it is there's an instant impact on availability of books and they've got to really swing into high gear um, and, and get more books produced, which is exactly what we had to do. Um, the book was just selling out everywhere immediately, um, internationally. Nationally, and my publisher had to work pretty hard to get things back up to speed. <laughs> that is so fun. Okay, so your book, of course, is about you know letting our kids fail, letting them become independent, all of that. There are many reasons that parents do things for their children rather than teaching that independence. It feels good as a parent. It takes longer to teach them how to do it than to just do it ourselves. So many different reasons. Why do we need to get over this? Well, from from the kids' perspective, we need to get over this because every time we do something for them, what we're what we're telling them, what they're hearing from us, what they're seeing from us is, I don't think you can do this by yourself. I don't think you're competent enough. I don't think you're capable enough. I'm just going to do it because you can't. And the longer we do that, not only are they not developing new skills, but they're losing this sense of what's called self-efficacy. It's a really important skill. It's an important sense of yourself, which is if I want to change the world around me, make an impact on the world around me, my immediate self or you know the bigger world, if I take this action, I truly believe that it will impact change. And a lot of kids that I talk to say, you know, look, I just don't feel like I have any control over anything. Like even if I do something, it's not going to matter because I, you know, I don't know how to do X, Y, or Z, or no one believes I know how to do X, Y, or Z. And self-efficacy actually is a huge protective factor against so many things, against depression, against um, substance abuse, against so many other things. And then from on the other side, obviously, every single time we have a task in front of us that we don't know how to do, that's a learning opportunity. Um, I was telling someone recently that I realized after dragging my kids through the airport a bajillion times that they had absolutely no idea how to navigate an airport by themselves. And so then the very next time I did it, I just sort of left more time. And I wa we walked through the airport doors and I said, okay, what do we do first? And they looked at me like, what do you what are you crazy? This is an airport. I'm used to being dragged from place to place and having you show all the magic pieces of paper that get us from point A to point B. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, that's what we're doing today. And now my kids know how to navigate an airport, which, you know, is a huge important skill. And if we don't let them have those opportunities, um, you know, the very first time they try to go somewhere on their own, they're just lost and they look like idiots and they're embarrassed and they feel like they feel feel like they're incompetent. And that's the very last thing we want to raise in kids is kids who feel incompetent because that's 
self-perpetuating and they won't try new things because they feel incompetent. And uh, we want kids that feel like, okay, all right, I, 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 I've got a handle on this. I can at least figure it out because I've had similar experiences. In your book, you talk about rewards and how there are some appropriate uses for them, but when it comes to long-term drive, enthusiasm for learning, they're terrible motivators. So when do rewards actually work? When are they good? And what can we do instead when they aren't useful? Like whether it's for household tasks or school-related goals, what can we do instead? Yeah, so this is, um, I want to make it really clear, none of this is my research, none of this is my thinking. This is just, um, you know, obviously Dan Pink has talked about it in Drive and in his TED Talk, which is a summation of the higher, the bigger points of, of Drive. Um, but really, Edward DC, D-E-C-I, um, and his, in, especially in his book, Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation, um, and 40 years of really good research, like research that we've had the opportunity to reflect back on in the form of meta-studies, metadata, and look to see if those studies are good. We have 40 years of really solid data that show that when we use carrots and sticks, sticker charts, uh, paying kids for grades, um, uh, here's a lollipop if you'll do X. Uh, here's, you know, a reward you'll get in May if your grades stay above a B, whatever those those things are. And I want to make it really clear that there are positive ones and there are negative ones. There are things like, you know, money in exchange for grades and stuff like that, or sticker charts if you just act the way we want you to act in class. Um, and the negative ones, like when we surveil our kids through their phones, when we um, check on the grade portal all the time and nag them about their grades or nag them about their points and grades and scores, all of those things, and I'm not saying we can't use them, but all of these things are, are extrinsic motivators. And extrinsic motivators over the long term undermine kids' motivation to do the thing it is we want them to do. And gift of failure, I say it really clearly, if we want our kids to not want to learn math pay them for their math grades. If we want our kids to not know how to behave for the sake of the behavior itself, um, use sticker charts for behavior or you know some of the other sort of rewards for behavior. Um, what we want is intrinsic motivation, which is our, our kids' desire to do the right thing for this because it's the right thing, or to do um, an activity because they're actually engaged in the activity for the learning and not the the reward. And the other thing, by the way, that's really important to note is that extrinsic motivators also undermine creativity, which you know, in school is a huge deal. You know, if you're an art teacher or music teacher and you're trying to grade your kids on their creative output it's actually undermining their creative output to offer points and scores and grades for their creative output. Um, you have the rare kid who's engaged in it for the sake of the thing itself, despite the fact that they're being grade on, graded on it. But it's really a disaster for education because education should be long-term and it should be creative. Um, the way we get intrinsic motivation, though, has sort of three major components, and I'm happy to go through those. But essentially, that's why extrinsic motivators don't work very well and why it actually renders kids less interested in the long term in practicing their piano or doing their homework or learning math or whatever the thing is we're trying to get them to do. So that holy grail thing, that intrinsic motivation, and at its highest level, it's it, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi in his book Flow calls it this, you know, flow state where we're sort of one with the activity we're doing, which is lovely and wonderful, and it's a total rush when it happens, but it's also where the deepest learning happens. So, the more I, as a teacher or I, as a parent, can get my kids engaged in intrinsic motivation, ideally that flow state, that's that's like the holy grail for parenting and education because that's where the learning that's going to really stick for the long term for various cognitive reasons, for various, you know, neurological reasons. That's where we want our kids to be. So when you say that sometimes rewards work, I'm thinking of the example of potty training a toddler and we use little candies right. and it seemed to, it seemed yeah. effective and they did not still require the candies. They, you know, I think they kind of got that entrance, you know, eventually and wanted to be able to independently use the bathroom. You've actually hit the nail on the head because actually there is a really great exception to, for example, sticker charts or um, candies for using the potty. The pot, potty training seems to be, and I don't, there aren't really, this is more anecdotal evidence than anything else. But potty training seems to be the exception to this rule in that. And, and I also want to make it really clear that extrinsic motivators, sticker charts, um, you know, all of the things we've talked about 
are actually really effective in the short term, which is why they're so tricky, because they seem to work like gangbusters until they don't. But potty training seems to be the exception because the reward of potty training isn't in the big in the big picture, it's not being in a diaper anymore and and the sort of the pride of having control over your own body. So there is sort of a, a, a built-in um, intrinsic motivation for potty training. So don't despair. Use Cheerios in the toilet. Use uh, your <laughs> reward system. Use an M&M every time you pee in the potty. That's fine. Um, and, and it may work um, with some kids. It just, that stuff just doesn't work and you just got to wait till they're ready. Um, but like I said, that's that's our exception to the to the rule. And the other exception actually is if you want your kids to do something that requires really short term focus, not sustained attention, not sustained goal setting, not like okay, first I have to do this, then I have to do that, then I have to do that. More complicated thinking. Actually, extrinsic motivators work great, and they'll especially work great if you want to motivate a kid to do something as a one off. Like if they refuse to go to their first soccer practice, you can offer them, you know a reward to go to that one first soccer practice. But if you continue to offer them rewards for going to soccer practice, they will be in it for the reward, not only because of the way our brains work, but because from their perspective, what you're telling them is this reward I'm giving you for going to soccer is more valuable than the soccer practice. Or, um, if you, I make the joke all the time that when I was growing up, um, Pizza Hut used to offer pizza coupons in exchange for reading over the summer. And what we're telling kids through that is that the pizza is more valuable than the reading. Otherwise, we would be giving kids books for eating pizza because that reward is the thing we want them to cast their gaze on and hold on to as like the be all end all valuable thing. So short term, one off motivation boost, go for it. That's totally it works. It'll, it won't continue to work, but it will work. Um, but for long-term endeavors, try to stay away from, I mean, and I'm not saying you can't ever use them. We have to use them sometimes. It's just sort of how the world works. I mean, heck, you know, I get paid for the work I do. That's an extrinsic motivator, but from a parenting perspective and from an education perspective, the more we can help kids tap into their intrinsic motivation, the more successful we're going to be in terms of our teaching and parenting. You and I are both teachers, and I can totally relate to a statement you made um, in the introduction of your book. Issues with parents are the stuff of my nightmares. And later in the book, you offer a lot of great <laughs> tips for parents who want to establish good relationships with their children's teachers. So can you share some of those tips for establishing those good relationships? Yeah, the first thing I want to do is make it really, really clear that two things. Number one, I, I am a parent, and the the gift of failure, sort of the reason I, I wrote the book was um, not just that I was miffed with the parents of my students, which I'll get to in a second, but I realized I had this sort of um, <laughs> light bulb lightning incineration and, and embarrassment moment where I realized that I was actually doing the same thing that the parents of my students, that I was so angry with them for some of these behaviors, the overparenting behaviors that were parenting their kids into a feeling of just paralysis and helplessness and um, lack of motivation. I was doing the same thing to my own kids. So let me make it really clear. Total high horse. I was on a super high horse about sort of, you know, being pissed off at the parents of my students. And we, homeschool relationships are one of the most important elements of a successful education. So if parents and teachers are not on the same page, or if they're angry at each other, or if they're miffed at each other, if they're adversarial, then we are undermining education from the moment a kid walks into the classroom. So we have to fix that. We have to figure out some way. It's sort of like I make the analogy that um, when parents separate, the one thing we can't, and assuming you know the kids love both of their parents, and so the one thing we can't do is undermine the other parent in front of the kids because it's confusing for them. It's it's really emotionally distressing for them. And while you know, teacher teachers and parents are not on the same level as two parents. It is similar. If a kid loves their teacher and you're bad-mouthing their teacher, and vice versa, although I can't imagine a teacher bad-mouthing a parent, I suppose it happens, um, it's really emotionally complicated for the kid. So 
there's all kinds of things you can do in order to heal those relationships. And I've had to do it with parents. This is not a unilateral <laughs> situation. Um, and I've had to do it with students too. I mean, I think we get in these self-perpetuating cycles of bad behavior or expectations about bad behavior that perpetuate the bad behavior itself. With students, I follow them around until they do something good and then I notice it and I say something about it. And, and that can often heal a relationship. With parents, often it's about me swallowing my pride and reaching out and thanking them for raising a kid that that was responsible in this moment or praising them for raising such a great kid who did XYZ that I saw in school. And from the other side, just if you're if you've had a longstanding struggle with a a teacher. And um there are definitely incompetent teachers out there. Absolutely, you know, every profession has incompetent people in it, but for the most part, you're not going to be able to switch mid-year. So making a bad situation better is going to be really good for your kid. And the way you can do that is sometimes, honestly, I've had parents, uh, I've had situations where I've had a conversation where I've said, look, we just got off on the wrong foot. And for the sake of your kid and for the sake of your kid's learning, we just really need to start over. Or if a parent goes to the teacher at the very beginning of the year and says, look, I am trying really hard to give my kid more autonomy and I trust you as a teacher to hold my kid accountable. And so here's the best way to reach me. I'm not going to be checking. This is something I have to do every year, actually, is go to the teacher's I email all my kids' teachers and I say, look, I won't be checking the portal, the computer parent portal where you can check on your kids' grades. I've never looked at it as a parent. So I have to tell the teachers that. I have to say, look, I'm not going to be looking over my kid's shoulder on the portal. So if something starts to circle the drain, here's the best way to reach me. And I trust you to do your job. I trust you to hold my kid to consequences. That's going to be really important. And I just wanted to let you know that um, thank you for being my kid's teacher. I mean, just saying you trust them as a professional can get you off on the right foot and saying, here's the best way to reach me. Um, here's my cell number. Here's my spouse's or partner's cell number. Um, this is um, We're in this together. And what I really care about is not necessarily the grade, but that my kid learns. And that's our shared interest. I, As a teacher, I don't know, I might send you flowers for that. That's like, you know, that vote of confidence in my role as a professional is definitely going to get you off on the right foot with a teacher. And now what about homework? I know you and I are on exactly the same page on so many things. So I almost feel guilty because I'm using you to reinforce a lot of the things that I like to tell parents. <laughs> but uh, what role should parents play when it comes to homework from the early grades right through high school? Okay. Well, first we can talk a little bit just about um, homework and uh, the impact, the academic impact it has on kids. And, you know, the research is really clear. It's research. The best research we have is out of Duke University. And it's um, been, we've talked about it a lot in the, in the media, which is in elementary school, homework has no academic impact on kids. In middle school, it has a middling uh, in academic impact. And in high school, it has um, a, a limited, like up to a certain duration, it has an impact on academic performance. Um, parents will often push back and say, yes, 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 but my child must have homework in elementary school because it helps them establish a routine. And my usual comeback is read every day. That's establishing a routine. Or um, help engage your kid in helping make dinner. That's part of establishing a routine. Make sure they have household duties. That's part of establishing a routine. But above and beyond what the research says about homework. Um, a parent's role in homework, and I wrote about this at... Um, at PBS Parents, actually, there's a whole article there where I go pretty deep on how parents should, uh, what parents' role should be with younger kids. And really, it's to help redirect kids, not to solve issues for them. I, I like to tell parents to think of themselves as the, a good teacher. So if a kid raises their hand in class and says, I don't understand, I don't understand this problem, what do I do? A teacher is not going to rush over there and um and solve the, number one, definitely not going to give them the answer to the problem. What we're going to do is say, look, okay, well, you don't understand number four, but let's look at what you did with number three. How did you solve that problem? And how might you use those same tools to solve number four? Or it can be as simple as, okay, well, let's read the instructions together again. Maybe help me help me as my as the mom i haven't read the instruction yet or the dad help me understand what you think you're supposed to do and sometimes i'd say 
I hate to say it, like 90% of the time as a teacher, my role is to stand there and listen to the kid while they talk and then they say, oh, never mind, go away, I figured it out. That's often our role and that's sort of helping refocus, redirect and support while they're going through this moment of, oh my gosh, I don't get it, I'm so stupid, that kind of thing. As kids get older, um, you know, I think a lot of parents and myself included, uh, we had to move recently, and I had this grand image of finding a house that has the dining room table is where we're all going to gather, or someplace in the kitchen is where the kids are going to do their homework so I can be there and chopping the carrots while the kid's doing the homework and they can ask me questions. But the problem is that's our idea of how homework is supposed to go. And often we fail to ask kids what their perfect homework scenario looks like and when they might do it and where they might do it. And giving them some of that autonomy, those control over those decisions can can get them more engaged. Um, but as kids get older, definitely by middle school, parents' role in homework should be minimal. It should be... Um, Oh, you say you don't understand, you know, how to divide these two things. Um, explain to me, you know, what the problem is. Or, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of, you know, and I happen to know a lot of math teachers. And one of my, <laughs> one of my colleagues when I, at, where I taught middle school last, said, you know, when a kid comes in and. I can tell, number one, that the kid didn't do the work because, frankly, I haven't taught trigonometry yet, and I happen to know the dad is a math professor, and the kid um, can't explain how he got the answers on these very simple algebra problems. That helps no one. Homework is about information for the teacher to help understand where your kid is in terms of their learning. So if a kid gets stuck, redirect uh, help them refocus, have them talk through what they don't understand. And if you hit a place where absolutely they are 100% stuck and they really, truly don't understand it, rather than reteaching whatever the skill is, one of the things you can do is say, fine, you don't get this part. That's really important informa information for your teacher. So why don't you write down in your little homework book that some teachers, those infernal homework books that teachers send home and make you sign. P.S. You should not be signing that. Your kid should be signing that because that's about whether or not they finish their homework to the best of their ability and how you are supposed to know if it was the best of their ability. I have no idea. So I've never signed that. My kid signs that. And that notebook or on the back of their homework or on the front of their homework or in a note attached to their homework, explaining why they didn't understand something. That's a really great opportunity for them not only to convey useful information to their teacher about what they understood and didn't understand, but sometimes just the act of writing down what they didn't understand and what they did understand can help get them over the bend, around the bend with actually understanding it. And it can be one of those, oh, no, no, I get it, never mind, go away moments. So elementary school, redirect and support. Middle school, really just back off and um, and let your kid do it. Don't nag them. Have them. They have to be in charge. If they have a long-term report due in three weeks, um, your job, especially with a middle school kid who's doesn't have the executive function skills possibly yet to sort of long-term plan an assignment, you could be talking to them about strategies like, oh, you have this long-term assignment due. So it looks like, it sounds to me like when I had a long-term assignment, there were various stages of it. Is there any way that maybe you could give yourself some self-imposed deadlines for those stages? Like when would you like to have maybe like your, your outline due, that kind of thing, and helping them learn how to manage a calendar, how to create checklists, how to create Google alarms on their calendar so their calendar alarms so that they can think, oh, and this is something I use a lot. Oh, I have a, an article due next week for the New York Times, and uh, it would be really great if this Friday I actually knew what I was going to write about before it's due next Friday. Um, so I set a calendar alarm. Have you thought about that article yet? And those kind of that kind of guidance for helping kids learn how to manage their time and manage their homework. Um, that's your role in middle school. And by the time they're in high school, you should have almost nothing to do with their homework unless it's being a supportive parent talking through how frustrating it can be when you don't understand something yet.
I hope that, that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So that leads me to a question actually from one of the members of my virtual book club who is reading The Gift of Failure. And she wants to ask you, so most of my friends with high school children hire tutors, sometimes to support kids who are having difficulty because of less one-on-one -on -one time with teachers in large classes, but also because there's so much pressure to keep marks high to get into university. A couple of bad grades in grade 12 can change the course of a kid's life. So how do you feel about this whole tutoring system? Well, I want to give you a couple of perspectives on tutoring. Number one, um, when I speak at schools, often what I'll do is I have this, it's so much fun. When I speak at schools, often I'll talk to the kids during the day, then the teachers in the afternoon for, for professional development, and then the parents in the evening. So it means that I, what I do with the kids is I have a whole routine I do with them. But one of the things I do is I give all of the kids my personal email address. And I say, look, I'm going to be talking to your parents in about three hours email me. What do you want me to tell them? What do you need for your parents to know that you feel like they're just not hearing? And a really common thing I hear, I just got this from a boy recently, um, a high school boy. He said, could you please tell my parents that I do not need tutors in every subject? And I said, well, you know, I don't know you. Do you need tutors in every subject? And he said, no, it's something they automatically do in high school because everyone around here does it. This happened to be a super high pressure high school um, and with affluent parents who could afford to get tutors in every subject. And because some of the parents do it, or the perception is that all of the parents do it. And by the way, there's a name for that over-perception. Um, I won't go into it, but essentially, we often perceive that everyone else is doing something that we're not doing we overestimate the investment of tutors or uh, with, uh, I've been writing a book on substance abuse and kids tend to overestimate how much all the other kids drink. And so that tends to then guide their behavior. And it's the same thing with parents. We tend to think, oh, everybody else is getting tutors. I have to get tutors. But if you were to actually look at how many parents get tutors, it's not as many as you think it is. Um, so, the, and the kids said, you know, when my parents get me tutors in every for every subject right off the bat, it makes me feel really stupid because the message they're sending to me is, we don't think you can do this on their own, on your own. And we're sending absolutely the wrong message when we do that. If we hold off though, and we find out where maybe they do need some support because I have nothing against tutors, I have been a tutor, um, then we send the right message, which is, not everything comes easily, nor should it. And sometimes we need some extra help. You know, I am trying to learn Spanish right now. I'm not doing it on my own. I have a program that's helping me and I have someone, a friend I can call if I get really stuck. So that said, I also, having been a tutor and, and knowing lots of tutors, I want parents to just keep in mind the economic realities of tutors. We pay the tutors. Often tutors will um, over-represent what they can deliver. And that tends to be in terms of grades and points and scores. And so that is not necessarily about the learning. As much as we would love to believe that grades are a reflection of learning, I can tell you right now they are not always a reflection of learning. They are a reflection of a lot of things. Learning is one of them, but not always learning. And if the goal is that kids learn stuff, we need to have some sort of economic tutoring uh, business where we know that learning is happening and not necessarily some like increase from B to an A, that kind of thing. Um, so, and, and essentially if I'm paying you as the tutor, you want to please me. And the kid sometimes needs to be involved, engaged. There need to be, needs to be some sort of um, impetus for the tutor to also serve the needs of the kid. And that doesn't always happen because of the economic model of tutoring. That said, <laughs> that said, there are time and places for tutors, absolutely. But please let your kid give it a shot on their own first and maybe have a conversation with the teacher about whether or not they need a tutor. And I understand the temptation. I have a kid who's going to be taking the SAT fairly soon, has taken the PSAT as a matter of course at their school because they sort of gave it to everyone. And it's, it, it's really tempting for me to race out and get an SAT tutor right off the bat um, but I also want to give my kid the opportunity to do stuff on their own. And P.S., all kids cannot afford SAT tutors. And so, I, I mean, I know we have focused on our own kids and our own kids' achievement, but 
there's the moment where you say, oh my gosh, I'm perpetuating a system in which the people who can afford the tutors are the ones who are going to be able to game the system. And there's a fantastic book out right now called The Years That Matter Most by um, by Paul Tuff. And there's a huge section in there that covers um, Ned Johnson, who is the co-author of a book called The Self-Driven Child. He also happens to be an incredibly in-demand, like the go-to SAT tutor for the DC metro area. And he he expresses his conflict, his internal conflict about what he's perpetuating. And I, I know your first thought as a parent is going to be for your own child, but I don't think it should be a requirement to take the SAT or to, to go to school to have tutors. And, and the fact that this is becoming the case for wealthy parents is, is really, really troubling for me because now it seems like there's a standard for, you know, you know where I'm going with this. It's just a really troubling situation, not to mention that it undermines kids' feelings of competence and, um, and their own sense of self-efficacy. So let, let kids give it a shot on their own. And then maybe if, if they are having problems, have a conference with the teacher where you three of you, not just you, especially in high school, there should be no just parents and teachers meeting together. It should always be with the kid um, to talk about solutions. And that might include a tutor. It might just include Khan Academy. It might just include online resources and extra help. Um, it might require just extra help from parents, but Get, let the kids give it a shot on their own first, please. Perfect. Now, in The Gift of Failure, you also write something interesting about bullying. When parents overreact to everyday social interactions and label it bullying, children never learn how to figuratively push back and demand respect. So how can parents know, this is kind of a two-part question, how do they know if it's actual bullying? Right. And when it's not, how can they help their child to deal with those regular social issues? Yeah. Well, let's start even younger. So in the book, I, I draw the, um, I talk about, you know, the kids in the sandbox and I mean, and literally talk to any teacher who has had to deal with a bully in middle school or high school. And it all comes back to the figurative sandbox, which is you have two kids, two toddlers in the sandbox. One kid throws sand in the other kid's face and the other kid, um, cries because it's upsetting, not only because it's uncomfortable to have sand in your face, but suddenly there's this, you've been lashed out at. It's it's upsetting as a social interaction. The way we as human beings work is that we both learn from that social interaction. The kid who has had the sand thrown in their face needs the opportunity to convey to the other kid don't do that. That hurts my feelings. That hurt me. I got sand in my eye. It hurts. I can't see out of this eye now. And even more importantly, I dare say, not more importantly, but equally important, the kid who threw the sand needs that moment to look in that other kid's face and register, oh, I hurt them. Because as much as we would love to believe that, you know, we watch movies and there are these bullies. I always think back to... um, a Christmas story and the kid with the red hair who's the bully. He was not born a bully. He had some moment where as a very young child, he had the opportunity to um, lash out at a kid and and register that kid and, and that kid's pain through learning um, how to perspective take as another human being or, or developing empathy. And that starts really, really young. But what we've done now is create a situation where um, we're so quick to move the kids apart. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry my kid did that and just pull them out of the sandbox. Or, oh my gosh, your kid was mean to my kid. Pull the kid out of the sandbox. And those kids never have the opportunity to look at each other. And Although I know we're not supposed to talk about Louis C.K. anymore because he did these terrible, terrible things, but there is a sketch that he did, and I believe it was on one of the late shows. I can't remember. But if you Google Louis C.K. and cell phones for kids, he explains why he does not believe the kids should have cell phones. And one of the reasons is that we have the opportunity to... And yes, it's a comedy gag, but it also, there's a real ring to it, which is we, a real truth to it, which is that when kids hurt each other on social media, they never, ever have to look in the other kid's eyes. And, uh, that, that is hindering, you know, not having to look in that other kid's eyes is really hindering uh, an important learning process. I would recommend to every parent the book Unselfie by Michelle Borba or Katie Hurley's No More Mean Girls, which both of those books are fantastic because they're all about helping develop empathy in kids. And that's incredibly important, not just for the kid who got hurt, because you can say, look, 
and we've had to do this with our kids. Um, my kid had was being bullied. No, he wasn't being bullied. See, I just I just went to that. He was having <laughs> normal social jockeying with a kid who had just been through something absolutely tragic. She had lost her mother at a very early age and had a father who was just not able to engage with her because he was so devastated over the sudden loss of his um and he had a very that she was growing up in a very chaotic um household. So when she would do things at school that were upsetting to my kid, I had to talk to my kid about what she's going through at home and the fact that sometimes it's important to be able to understand it through someone else's perspective and um, and to cut her a little bit of slack. And on the other side, she needs to be able to look in those other kids' eyes and understand the impact she's having on their emotions, on their feelings, on their lives. And when we automatically label it bullying, it starts a whole bunch of gears turning, especially from a legal perspective. Um, schools, state, it varies state to state, but in states that have had situations, especially where um, a bully led to a kid's suicide, um, you know, there's this huge move to create laws that automatically, all these uh, schools have to automatically put all these rules in place when there's a bully. And I've been in a situation where um, at a school, I have to be a little bit vague about this, but I've been in a teaching situation where the parent wanted us to essentially follow around the perceived bullies all the time and listen in on their conversations to make sure that her daughter was safe. And um, I'm fudging the gender here, but it doesn't matter. It could be a boy, it could be a girl. Um, and essentially, we, we're we creating a situation in which we want to put a safety bubble around a kid, which is logical. Of course, we want our kids to be safe, but at a certain point, we can't do that forever. So Yes, we need to protect our children. And yes, we need to teach bullies that that is not at all how they can act. But a certain amount of social jostling is how kids figure out what's allowed and what's not. And as a teacher, I can tell you that I can tell a kid not to do something, but the social pressure of other kids telling him not to do that thing in class, that it's disrespectful, um, whatever, is much more powerful. And I'll give you a quick analogy. I, um, I, I tell a story. I, for the past five years, I've been teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab um, with kids who have had a really hard road. And many of these kids, as much as I love them, probably are bullies back at their home school. Many of them have had a lot of issues um, socially and academically, which are the a lot of the risk factors for substance abuse, which is how they land in my classroom. I had a kid who... Um, uh, had been taken off of a whole bunch of his meds and we were detoxing him. And so he was really, his his fuse was really, really short. And I interrupted him out of enthusiasm. I was excited about what he was saying. And he got really angry and he said, do not interrupt me. And he got so angry at me and I apologized. And I don't know, about half an hour later, um, he interrupted me and I smiled and I just let it go. And the rest of the class, because he's in a really tough place. He was detoxing off of a bunch of drugs and alcohol and he was really his, just, he couldn't focus. And I understood that about him. And I, and the other, but the other kids said, Hey, wait a minute. He just interrupted you. Aren't you going to get angry at him for interrupting you? And I said, no, I don't think so. I, you know, he's, he's having, you know, he's new. This is his first couple days and it can be, he was enthusiastic. He didn't interrupt me to be mean. And I reflected back the behavior I wanted to see in him and the rest of the class showed sort of imposed their own justice. And he apologized to me after class. It was like this amazing moment where I didn't have to do any of that because the herd took care of it for me. And that's much more powerful than if I had retaliated with the same response he had and gotten angry at him for um, interrupting me. It was a really magical moment. Um, and that same thing has happened um, when kids, when, uh, I, you know, if a kid farts in class and the kids laugh at that kid, um, my job is to hear a kid fart and say nothing and and to model that behavior for them. You know, it's that this is these are the lessons we teach in middle school. So anyway, I, I I think it's really important for us not to jump to bullying. And you just saw me do it as a parent and as someone who writes about this all the time. You just heard me do it. The temptation is real to protect our own children. I I feel 
perfectly homicidal when I hear that a kid has wronged my kid. But we also have to remember that we're not there when it happens. We don't get to hear the whole story. And the the thing I say as a teacher to parents all the time is, I promise not to not to believe every single thing your child tells me happens in your home because I hear some doozies. If you promise not to believe every single thing you hear about what goes on in my classroom because the truth lies somewhere in the middle. The next question is another one from my book club. And this mom, it's a very tricky situation. So here it goes. My child is almost 18 and initially presents as typical, but has the IQ and emotions of a nine-year-old. People in new situations, like a new part-time job or new friends, can expect a lot of her because they aren't aware of this. Failure is her everyday life, and it's hard for me to see it as a gift, as she will never be successful based on society's norms. I struggle with how much to respect her privacy and let her flounder, and how much to speak up and let others know what her reality is, which could preempt many problems. What do I do? This is such a great question, and honestly, it's a question I get at every single speaking engagement. It's an email I get at least two or three times a week. Um, what I first off, I will answer the question, but I also want to point out: at, if you Google "gift of failure" FAQ um, and YouTube, uh, you'll get a, a playlist of the frequently asked questions I get the most, and one of them is, "What about my special needs kid?" Um, so, and I also do a lot of speaking at special needs at school. In fact, I'm I'm speaking at a school in Texas in just a couple of months um, that is specifically for kids with learning issues. Um, and I've, it's such an opportunity for me because, yes, I'm often, often talking at these sort of high pressure, high stakes, you know, um, you know, every parent thinks their kid is gifted sort of situations. But I actually really love talking about this because one of the things that we as parents tend to do when we're really worried, and first off, I have to rec recommend a book to your to your book club member. Um, it's a book called Ungifted by Scott Barry Kaufman. Scott is um, he is he's such a lovely human being. His book is amazing. He actually grew up as a special needs kid. He had an auditory processing disorder that worked itself out over time, and so he slowly sort of caught up with his peers, but initially had tested very low in his IQ, and so he had been shunted into a special needs program, and, and because testing is really only, it's why if your kid um, is getting tested for um, some sort of learning issue, that testing needs to be redone um, every three years is sort of has been the traditional standard. But anyway, so Scott... Um, knew at a certain point that what he really wanted to do was to be in regular classes. Actually, what he really wanted was to be in the gifted classes because he had friends in those classes and they were talking about what they were doing in those classes and it sounded fascinating to him. But he was never allowed that opportunity because the expectations were that he couldn't handle it based on that IQ test he'd had early on. Um, but Scott's story is atypical, but what his, is not atypical was his mother's response when a teacher noticed that Scott was really bored and needed more challenge, the teacher, thank goodness for this teacher, said to him, what are you doing in in special ed? And and Scott said, you know, I have been asking that question for years. And he ran down to the payphone, and I often have to explain to kids what a payphone is. He ran down to the payphone and called his mom and said, mom, why am I in, um, you know, in special ed still? Because I don't think I'm supposed to be here anymore. And his mother said, we did not want you to be challenged in those classes and fail and get frustrated or think badly about yourself. That's not how learning works. And that's certainly not how it should work because everything gets hard for everybody. And for a kid with special needs, it may be one level of difficulty is sort of where their ability level um, begins and ends. And for a kid who I just spoke to, for example, the Texas um, Association of Gifted and Talented, for those kids, it may be a completely different place. But our tendency as parents is to talk about all of our kids as being so above average, but really when it comes down to it, to underestimate our kids just by a hair. Just I'm not saying like this parent is underestimating her kid all the time. I'm saying what I as a teacher have to do is know where my students' ability levels are all pretty much all the time, which is, you know, really hard to do, but it's something that you learn how to do over time using these things called formative assessments. And then just put our big toe over that line for every single kid, for the kid with special needs and for the kid who's, you know, super gifted and talented and often running on their own. Just 
give them that extra little tiny bit of challenge because what it's doing, and there's some great studies on this in education, ones you probably already know about. If you give a teacher two groups of kids that are all at exactly the same place in their ability level, and you tell the teacher that one of these groups is gifted and the other one is average, the gifted group, just based on the elevated expectations of the teacher, will perform at a higher level. So if we are constantly expecting just a hair, just a big toe over the line beyond what our kids are are able to do, and then use words like yet, oh, I'm sorry, you can't do this yet? Well, of course you can't. You just learned how to do it. Let me support you while we figure out how to do this. That word yet is a um, you know a Carol Dweck growth mindset kind of word. If you have not read the book um, Mindset, please go read the book Mindset and not just articles about mindset because the media has been totally oversimplifying the concept. Um, helping kids believe that learning shouldn't be easy. That's not you know, whether it's tying your shoes or whether it's the quadratic formula, these things are hard. Tying shoes is requires a massive amount of manual dexterity. And of course it's difficult. And the quadratic formula is not an easy concept. Um, Steve Strogatz, math professor at Cornell um, talks to me about this all the time when I I went back and took Algebra 1 when I was in my 40s because I had been told as a younger person that I was not good at math and I believed it. And that became the self-fulfilling prophecy for my life. Um, I believed I wasn't good at math. I got math anxiety. I believed I wasn't good at it. And so now even as a 50-year-old married woman, I pushed the check over to my husband to figure out the tip. So I got mad after reading Mindset and I went back and took Algebra 1 in my 40s, which completely changed my understanding about math, which is it's not that I'm bad at math. It's that math gets hard for everyone at some point and how we react when it does get difficult, which is, oh, I'm just bad at math or, huh, math got hard. Well, this must be a difficult concept. I'm going to have to work a little bit harder, figure out how to do it, ask for help, you know, go on Khan Academy, ask my teacher for some extra help. Um, having those expectations just a hair beyond where our kids' expectations lie is really important. Um, And we're running long, so I'm just going to recommend the book um, Make It Stick out of Harvard University Press, which talks very specifically about something called desirable difficulties. It turns out when something is a little bit more difficult for us to understand as it first goes into our brain, the chances are much higher that we will learn that thing if we persist on a deeper level because our brains encode that information into our long-term memory instead of just shoving it into short-term memory. So having tasks that are slightly above our ability level and persisting at those tasks is how we achieve really deep, durable, long-term learning. And so whether that's for a kid that's gifted or a kid that has, um, has uh, issues, you know, tying their shoes or, at, you know, who looks 17, but is at a ninth grade level, it's going to be always important that that kid is being challenged all the time on, in small ways. Um, you know, and that's, that's applicable to everyone. And, and I just, I, I don't ever want a kid to be in the position that Scott Barry Coffin was in, which is that no one ever challenges him because they're afraid he'll feel bad about himself. That's how you create a kid who has what's called a fixed mindset about their learning, which is that, oh, well, this is my mental horsepower and that's all I got, end of story, which is not how the brain works. The more we stretch ourselves, the more we challenge ourselves, the more we do things that create more new connections in our our brains, the more capacity we build for uh, more intelligence. Intelligence is malleable. It is not fixed. So let's create a growth mentality about intelligence for kids, um, all kids, um, and not create this sort of fixed, you know, sort of, oh, this is what I got. Okay. Well, I guess that's not for me. I guess I'm not a math person. That is deadly. Let's not do that to kids. I hope that's helpful to the parent. And by the way, again, Gift of Failure, Frequently Asked Questions, YouTube, I have a whole channel. There's like six videos there for of the most commonly asked questions. Great. As a kindergarten teacher, I'm interested in your thoughts, some of the research you've talked about, about the importance of unsupervised free playtime. Now, in our classroom, I teach in Ontario, and kindergarten teachers have an early childhood education educator partner, so there are two of us working together. And we do have times in the day where we focus on math, we focus on literacy. I do like having that as part of the program, but we also have a time during the day that we call free play. And 
I like the idea of the unsupervised and I want to make sure I'm clear. Like we are, we are watching the kids safety wise because that's teachers' <laughs> job. I love the caveat. I, I love the like, yes. And the school's lawyers require me to say that. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Exactly. But we have, the, and I mean, I'm not jumping in the groups and saying, oh, I like your building. Let's count the blocks and, or trying to intervene with the social things. I kind of sit back. I'm watching, you know, from the corner of the room kind of thing to see how it's all going. I think it's really important, but I, you have more research on this than I do. So why is that unsupervised free play time important for kids? So funny. I just snuck away from the microphone to go over to my free play section of my office bookshelves because <laughs> I have a whole bunch of them. I mean, there's a whole bunch of fantastic books. I mean, obviously there's uh, Peter Gray's Free to Learn. There's, um, I'm looking at my, uh, there's just, um, there's a whole, hold on, I'm grabbing my whole stack because there's so many, but the reason I want to grab them Sorry, I'm away from the microphone. But the reason I want to grab them is that, you know, some of them uh, are about things like Richard Louv's Last Child in the Woods is really about nature deficit disorder, which, you know, is um, is relevant. But there's so many um, books, David Elkin's book, The Power of Play and Stuart Brown's book, Play, How It Shapes the Brain. So it turns out and but the book I really wanted to grab is one by Angela Hanscom called Balanced and Barefoot. Um, Angela Hanscom was an occupational therapist, is an occupational therapist. And one of the things she found was that she was getting more and more and more referrals. And it can't just be that suddenly everyone's losing their balance. I mean, is everyone suddenly getting a virus where their inner ear is disturbed? It turns out that's not what was happening. What was happening was when kids, um, and there's sort of unsupervised play is part of your question, and I'm going to get to that, but when kids are constantly careful and always on, um, you know, padded flat surfaces, they don't build the skills, um, the balance skills. And that's not just in their brain and their vestibular region and their inner ear, but their actual muscles and their core muscles, the, the things they need in order to be able to balance when they're on uneven terrain. And so Angela's um, argument is that kids, A, need to be barefoot and B, that's how we, and being barefoot on uneven terrain and, and playing in um, environments that are not just about a flat, you know, perfectly cushioned uh, playground is going to help our kids become um, physically and from this sort of uh, vestibular sort of system um, better able to handle themselves in the woods. And and she, what she she talks about the fact that like suddenly she was dealing with kids that were like elderly people where they have to be careful or they trip over you know the tiniest little thing. And um, that's super important. But from the perspective of free play, I I do have to point to a, a study that some of the coolest research on this comes out of Australia and New Zealand. And there's a reason for that. Because in Australia and New Zealand, you can't sue schools for, you know, if your kid gets hurt, there's limited anyway, there's limited litigation uh, laws in New Zealand and Australia. They can do things there pl with free play that we just can't do here. And um, there, I reported on a study in the Atlantic um, where they actually took away the rules at recess. They decided, okay, we're going to back off, let the kids do what they want, let there be more roughhousing, let there be more sort of quote unquote dangerous play and see what happens and not step in when there are altercations, let the kids sort of work out those altercations. And what they saw at that school was that disciplinary problems went down, behavior got better, not obviously also because kids were able to just be more active. Um, for, so from that perspective, and that was one small study, but from that perspective of that one school, they said, oh, wow, it's really interesting. We thought there'd be all these problems and there weren't. And then when you look at things like, there's a wonderful book um, by, uh, it, it's a book called Touch, and I want to say it's David Lind, but the book itself is called Touch. Um, he makes the case that if you look at, we all need a certain amount of um, social touch and that it turns out that boys in boys boarding schools tend to get that met more than kids who are not in that situation because boys and boys boarding schools tend to be taught by men and men have a higher level of comfort with physical jostling and you know roughhousing and so that gets that gets fed there so there's a lot of things that kids need a they need to move more because when they don't i make this uh, i say this all the time we must stop kids stop keeping kids in at recess for disciplinary problems because it is the kids we keep in 
from recess that need recess the most because those a lot of those heebie-jeebies disciplinary issues you work with little kids you know this if we can just let them move a little bit more um and have some choice about how they move and where they move and how fast they move and whether or not they're you know touching other kids um those some of those heebie-jeebies go away but physically it's important from a balance perspective it's important from a behavior perspective it's important and from a physical touch social touch uh perspective, it's important. So we should have recess in middle school. We should have more recess for younger kids. Um, learning, uh, and not just free play, learning should be movement-based. And and one of the things we know is that kids learn better when they're moving. When I see um, my students starting to get their eyes start to go dull, I have them stand up and literally just shift their weight from one foot to the other. If you were to watch a PET scan or uh, an fMRI of those kids' brains, their learning centers, their brains are kind of dull when they're sitting there and they're and they're, they haven't moved much, the minute they get up and just move their weight from one side of their body to the other, their brain starts to light up again. It's it, the movement is important, is as important to, um, to learning as, you know, the fact that I am giving them lessons that are effective. So there's so many aspects to free play that are so, so important. I cannot stress it enough. And, um, I'll, the, I'll pick up, just pick up Richard Louv's book, pick up Angela Hanscom's book, Balanced and Barefoot, for some really good research on, um, on why it's important. So obviously the gift of failure has given us lots, lots to talk about, lots of food for thought, but I know you have another <laughs> book on I the did, way. I had to, to talk long. No, that's okay. This is such rich information. So what can you tell us about your next book? Because I know it's fascinating too. So the book I'm working on, well, actually it's done um, from draft-wise. I'm working on the edits right now, which is just so exciting. Um, I'm working on the edits on a book um, that's currently called uh, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. It's about preventing substance abuse in kids. And um, it's it's been so eye-opening. For me, the reason I decided to write it is that, number one, I am an alcoholic with almost seven years of recovery. I have two boys. Um, they're currently 16 and 21. One just turned 21, and I crossed my fingers the entire night he turned 21. Um and I needed to know um, what I could do. My kids are already 50% of your risk of substance abuse um, is genetic. Um, that's sort of a squishy number. It's really 40 to 60%. So I needed to know what I can control um, in terms of preventing substance abuse in um, substance, we call it substance use disorder in my kids. How, what can I do to lower their lifetime risk? And there are actually a lot of things we can do. And while there are no guarantees, I sort of view it as, like um, picture the, you know, justice with her scales and one side is risk and one side is protection. The more protect, the more risk a kid has, the more protections we need to heap on them. So what are those protections and what are those risks? So that's what the next book is about. And then I'm actually just starting the research for the book that will come after that. Um, the substance abuse, a substance use disorder book, uh, won't be out until April of 2021 because, um, election season. <laughs> it's a really, uh, there are a lot of books that are not going to be published in fall of 2020 because it's just going to be so difficult to break through the noise in the, in the news cycle and, and get attention on a book. So April, 2021 is when that book will come out. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I might have to have you back to talk about that one too. Now, the very last question I always ask my guests is if they have a This Mom Loves or a favorite thing to share with listeners. So is there a particular app or a beauty product or a hack that you use or maybe a book that you've just read, anything that you think others might like? Oh, so many. I would love to share books. That's one of my favorite things to do. But honestly, my favorite parenting hack is the one I use every single day. And it is related to Gift of Failure because at the end of um, my talks, what parents really want is a takeaway. Like, okay, you said it's going to be really important for me to do X, but how do I do that thing? The one thing I do every single day as a parent, every single day, 
the minute I want to step in and and help or do or support or rescue um, is to constantly think, and I do this as a teacher too, what do I really want for my kid um, six months from now, a year from now, five years from now? Do I want to do this myself now? Do I want the dishwasher to be loaded the right way now? Or do I want my kid to know how to do it the right way in six months, in a month, whatever. Um, And that's really, really hard because sometimes that takes some planning, like the airport thing. Like, do I want to get through the airport quickly or do I want my kid to know how to get through the airport himself the next time? Just having that long-term perspective on my parenting goals. And um, one of my friends, Julie Lithcott-Hames, who wrote a beautiful book called um, um, How to Raise an Adult, says, you know, we our, our ultimate goal is to raise kids who don't need us anymore and or is to put, our, put ourselves out of a job, um, some form of that. And that's true. You know, I, my constant thinking has to be, do I want to be needed today or do I want to put myself out of a job eventually? And that can be really emotionally challenging for me because I love doing for my kids. I love showing them love, but um, having a more long-term perspective on my parenting um, has been a really important daily daily thinking I've had to switch over to. And it, it's it's what saves me when I really, really want to do for them. And so anyway, long-term perspective, both for my teaching and for my parenting has been a game changer for me. I will have all of the links for you to find Jessica Leahy and to get more information or to purchase her amazing book, The Gift of Failure, in the show notes for this episode at thismumloves.ca slash podcasts. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Jessica. Oh my gosh, this has been such a pleasure. I love, love talking with you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of This Mom Loves. Thanks, as always, to my fantastic podcast editor, Lucas Wojcicki. And thank you to all of you for being here. It will come as no surprise to regular listeners that I will encourage you to please rate and review This Mom Loves wherever you listen to podcasts. It can be so helpful. And even just word of mouth, you know, if you want to um, text a friend or mention it to somebody at work or a relative, anybody else who you think might enjoy the show, um, That would be absolutely fantastic too. Until next time.